Next week, our guest speaker will be a woman named Judith Taylor. Judith is the minister at the Unity Church here in Shreveport. Um, I love her, and I very much look forward to her being here. Um, Unity is one of those traditions. It's 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 about 125 years old. Unitarian universal, well, Unitarianism, is in this country only 200, maybe 20, not quite 25 years old. Unitarian Universalism is barely 50 or 75. I mean, and we're not 75 yet as a as a combined. Uh, I'm trying to do math on the run here. <laughs> as a combined 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 denomination. Um, but so it, it's in the scheme of things kind of new, but. The ideas are some that I think are growing in a lot of other traditions right now, and so I invite her to come during our Jewish and Christian Heritage Pillar to speak about new ideas in that vein, or arising from that vein, kind of like we did. The week after Judith is the Jewish and Christian Heritage Intergenerational Service. And the week after that is Christmas Eve, and we usually do a very light service um, in the morning, probably lots of singing and cookies. Uh, Either cookies and carols or singing and snacks, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, And then that evening we have our most traditional service of the year, or traditional in conventional Christian language and understanding. We actually have a candlelight service for Christmas Eve in which we read the story, uh, um, the Christmas story from the book of Luke, and we sing all the carols that we can possibly squeeze into the time that we're here. The choir does a number of uh, of songs, and we have a quartet, a musical quartet, a guest of musical, a quartet of musical guests that accompany all the music. And it's beautiful to see the candles reflected in these windows when it's dark. Um, anyway, it's a lovely service, and I hope you will come to that. All of that said, this is my last uh, opportunity to talk to you all about the Jewish and Christian heritage notions where I'm not already kind of scripted what I have to say. And so there were some ideas I wanted to lift up. Some of it will be, I guess, uh, revisiting some ideas that I've hit along the way. Uh, But my thoughts on these topics are plenty and then some. Uh, You know, so you're lucky that I get put in a frame about some of it. Um, And I'm grateful that I've gotten to talk about some of them in the adult ed class, which I'm really sorry everybody's not a part of. The the discussions and the broadening of ideas in the class is is pretty wonderful, I think. But uh, I will try to present these ideas today in the time that I'm allotted, okay? We're now in the month of December on the Gregorian calendar, and uh, we once marked years on the Gregorian calendar in designations of B.C. and A.D. 
B.C. stood for before Christ. And A.D. was Anno Domini, which was the year of the Lord um, in Latin. And so everything was constructed with those designations and drawn around um, a Christian orientation to history. Now, the part that I want to focus about is the uh, before Christ idea, or that's one of the things I want to focus on. Um, Several weeks ago, as part of this Jewish and Christian heritage focus, I offered thoughts about the distinction between the notion of Christ as a consciousness and a spiritual essence available to all people and the idea of Jesus the man. Um, as the holiday season uh, designed to honor the birth of Christ approaches, I want to take the opportunity to lift up again the perspective that we can use this season to celebrate the evolutionary dawning or birth of humankind's capacity or ability to universalize compassion. Now, in human history, as we've come to be in larger groups, I mean, we started with just immediate families, and then we collected into um, extended families, and then villages, and then cities, and then states, and nations, and I mean, not that order, but (laughs) uh, that's what we've done around here. Um, But our capacity to be have concern for broader groups has grown with history. Generally not visible in one lifetime. Um, of course, we're still learning and developing in this capacity, but what if, you know, just... For me, the idea of the, the Christ consciousness, the ability to grasp love for all that it exists, the idea of that coming into human consciousness, the perfect metaphor is light coming into the world for me. I, mean, I think it's a perfect metaphor. You may disagree. But so... In this season of the year, when we hit the darkest, no, the longest night of the year, and within a few, couple of weeks, you know, you know, uh, the light will begin to return. The celebration of light at multiple levels of, of existence and reality, and the capacity to experience or even entertain. The dawning of that into humankind is a really cool thing to think about. You may not agree with that either. Um, I'm sure you've heard the expression, uh, that never dawned on me. Or it finally dawned on me. You know, so we, we have personal experiences with the idea of something new a new understanding coming to our grasp that changed the way we saw something else. 
So Jesus, whether as the actual or representative, first in the Western culture to awaken to that universalized compassion or Christ consciousness is a pretty cool thing to think about too. Somebody was first. In human, in human development, someplace, somebody was first. Every place our brains have made these leaps and developed you know, the, do, the, the new things from the limbic system on out, something was first. at the new level of understanding. So, first light. I like to think of that as the first light, the dawning of the first light. Um, And whether, like I said, you think of it as actual or representative, the idea still works. Um, I've also mentioned on a number of occasions that there are movements in in numerous places within the Christian tradition to universalize the teachings of the church. Now, Unitarianism is one branch of our our history, and Universalism is another branch of our history, and they have had struggles against each other pretty much since we came together. Um, I am probably far more a Universalist than a Unitarian, but I am a Unitarian Universalist. Um, But that's last studied focus. Um, But part of what they're doing is reframing the lessons that are in the the, uh, literature from from that tradition, the the biblical stories, um, in ways that open them up a lot, and so I wanted to look at just a few of, of those teachings. And um, earlier in class, Sarah started giving my sermon, and I and I credited her for calling up some of the same references that I was going to use. But uh, there's an Episcopal priest named Cynthia Bourgeau. Um, and she has, in my opinion, opened some of the old interpretations up and translations that she's done in books that she's written. For example, she talks about the Beatitudes, and those are phrases that occur in, or statements that occur in both the Christian New Testament book of Matthew and in the Christian New Testament book of Luke, although they are not identical in the two places. The, the preference that uh, people seem to have is for the Matthew translation. Um, it's a little bit more poetic. But so Cynthia Bourgeau would op- offer, you know, blessed are the poor. Well, Luke says blessed are the poor. Matthew says blessed are the poor in spirit. And they both say pretty much for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, last week I talked about heaven and that being the perfect wholeness uh, that we have yet to experience, but that is part of us. That being my understanding of that word. Um, However many dimensional it may be. um, Boy, I'm sounding out there today. Um, but in her in her literature, she's saying from what she calls the wisdom tradition, um, 
poor in spirit means with an inner attitude of receptivity or openness. And she uses the Zen story about the seeker who comes to the Zen master and says, I want you to teach me, I want to learn, and then begins to tell all about himself and and, um, his experiences and his insights and his spiritual uh, knowledge. And so the Zen master decides to serve the seeker tea. And as the seeker is sharing all of this stuff and kind of going on, the Zen master begins to pour a cup of tea. As the man talks, the Zen master continues to pour. The cup begins to overflow, and the Zen master keeps pouring. Finally, the seeker notices that this is going on. He goes, stop pouring. The cup is too full. It can't hold anymore. And the Zen master says, and you are full. How can I teach you anything? So the analogy that she makes is between the poor in spirit being empty. If you have not, then it's it's in some ways poverty. So to be poor in spirit and to receive the kingdom of heaven, I mean, you're opening yourself to the idea of wholeness. But you have to empty out enough in order to do that. Okay, this is kind of the new, the new tack that she's taking with some of this. Um, another one that she brings up is, well, she goes through all of them, but I'm picking examples. Um, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, in our culture, this this. Beatitude has often been taken to be talking about moral virtue and um, sexual chastity. I mean, the, the idea that one would be pure in heart. Purity is equated with those kinds of things. And she says that from the wisdom tradition, purity in that time and in that language would translate more into the idea of singleness. Not divided. So if you are pure in heart, you're not fighting against yourself with this stuff. You have come to to have unified understanding. Um, over the, year, the course of the year, we've talked about a lot of dualistic thinking and that if there's an us, there has to be a them. And if there's a hot, there has to be a cold. And that it's possible that in our developmental uh, nature as, as beings, we are approaching a place where thinking will be beyond either or. But to be single in heart, to not be divided in your heart about anything, to call that pure in heart, means that you're you're living in integrity with yourself, with the universe, with um, 
with all that is around you regardless of what that is. Can, can we even imagine that? And we're living in times that are particularly challenging for some of us. Um, I had this experience the other night. No, well, two things. There's a sci-fi series that I watched in which they talk about uh, the upside down. And in that world, everything is pretty much opposite of what it is in this world. It, like, if, if something is light and good, then there's ample darkness to compare it or to balance it. And, and there's a whole lot more to the story. But just that idea occurred to me the other day when I was watching the news. I, I, was, I watched a couple of channels, and then I flipped to one that would um, be from a very different perspective. And what I saw was this, these couple of channels were focused on dark, 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 bad, 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 it's all horrible, you know, and then this other one, wonderful things are going on in the world. And the stories that these were absolutely obsessed with weren't there at all. So the, the part of the population that's watching this new stuff isn't even hearing much about what these people are totally eaten up with. And it struck me like the upside down. What I was trying to tell the kids when they were here was the idea, and I keep coming back to this, that I think paradox is more the rule than the exception. It's not either or, it's both and. And unless we can find ways to begin to grapple with that and have it start to make sense with us, we're going to miss the whole next leg. My favorite of theological headstands, because I'm talking about upside downs, came about, uh, I, I heard from a woman who came down here from New York to share things she was really excited about. She's a Catholic, and she had discovered all of these um, friezes and things in a, in a newly opened museum in Rome where women were being acknowledged for their participation in the Christian story in ways that they had not been acknowledged before. And she uh, uh, was starting to awaken in her own awareness that in the lectionary, the verses at the beginning of a chapter that have to do with the participation of women aren't part of the lectionary. The lectionary will start with the fourth, fifth, or sixth verse of the chapter just to edit out the part of women. She was very excited about talking about all this. So at, uh, we went to lunch together, and she told me about a new take on one of the parables that has been problematic for people for a long time. Now, the parables are stories that Jesus used to, te to teach people with. Um, they're... This particular parable was the parable of the talents. And in the parable of the talents, somebody gets ten talents. Uh, the, the master gives people that work for the master 
He gives one person ten talents, and another person five talents, and another person three talents, and another person one talent, or something along those numerical lines. Um, he goes away, and when he comes back, the person who, to whom he has given ten talents has, uh, he's told them, you know, to use the money, um, had, has earned ten more. So he's turning in, to, he was returning to the master twenty talents. He's, earned, he's doubled his money. Um, the person with five talents gives back to the master an additional five talents. He's doubled his money. And the person with two or three gives back twice that many. So the master has invested in all of these people and they have um, doubled his money according to how much he trusted them. And, you know, the parable of the talents has been used over the years to talk about, you know, um, you're responsible to make use of everything that you're given. Her spin on the story, the person with one talent in the story, in the parable, buries it in the ground and keeps it safe and when it's time, returns the talent to the master that he has been entrusted with. In her spin on the story, the guy that put the talent in the ground is the hero because the master doesn't say he said, any limits on how you make money? How corrupt the means of making money might be. And when the people bring it back to them, the master doesn't ask them where they got their money double. Now, to make that kind of turnover in cash in that era... For people who were, you know, worked for somebody else would have been very, very, very unlikely. And so for those questions not to be asked is a good reason for suspicion. And the person who buried the talent in the ground was the one who would not participate in the corrupt systems but did care for the talent that he was given. So the whole point of this is we have listened to stories and tales if, if we have been a part of that tradition um, as they have been passed down and as they have been changed over time. But to judge those books by that, by those old covers is not to do them justice. Cynthia Borgeau also says that there are many of the teachings of Jesus that are set up intentionally to be like Zen koans. They're supposed to stand your thinking on your head or, or uh, confound the logical mind to get you out of all these things that limit what box we can see things through, what lens, what, how uh, dense our lens is. Now, I'm already way over time, and I 
All I want to do is in this study period remind all of us that this is a journey that we're on, that building beloved community means finding ways that we can under we can understand people that we can't understand. Doesn't make sense. It does somewhere. They're not stupid. They're not heartless. They're not uh, naive. They have life too. Whoever they are. So, where do we come from? May we come to be know ourselves as born of light. And in this season, may the light dawn more fully in every one of us. It's in our ability to forgive, grasp, and respect. And it takes a lot of work to get there. Very few of us do, certainly not me yet. But that's when beloved community across the planet will be possible. I just want to encourage us to try to be part of it. <laughs>